As we shift our focus now to Revelation chapter 2, we're going to uh, begin to study uh, those letters that our Lord Jesus Christ Himself wrote to the seven churches. If you notice carefully the wording, to the angel of the church at Ephesus, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds. Now, who is speaking? Is Jesus Christ Himself. He is the one addressing the seven churches. And John is merely taking dictation in this case. We, we do not often talk about the inspiration of Scripture as being dictation. Typically, it is more inspiration as God breathes the words into the lives and personalities of the writers. But in Revelation, these seven letters are actually written by Jesus Christ Himself through the pen of John to the churches. And as we look at these seven letters, we find that each one of them follows a characteristic pattern. Um, Jesus introduces Himself. And then um, He talks about... uh, who they are, gives some kind of uh, identification in the salutation, and then he gives them a commendation, if it's at all possible. And by the way, uh, psychology, effective psychology, has nothing over on God. Uh, if it's effective, he invented it. If it's not, uh, they, they just haven't figured that out yet. But all effective psychology works because God designed it. And I notice in these letters that wherever possible, the very first thing that Jesus does is commend them. He wants to genuinely compliment and reinforce them. Now, you can abuse that. I remember when I was studying marriage and family counseling in college, and my professor said, you need to learn to use a love sandwich. And what he meant by that was, I love you, but, and then you give your complaint, and then you say, I love you. Well, there's another uh, branch of psychology that uh, has looked into something called operant conditioning. And if you use that love sandwich (laughs) on our horizontal plane, you know what happens? You set people up. Every time they hear, I love you, they're waiting for the but. So you don't want to do that. But, uh, But Jesus is very genuine and very clear that He gives a commendation whenever possible. And He tells them what's good about them. Genuinely good. And and you can recognize a genuine compliment, can't you? Don't you know when someone's patronizing you versus when they're genuinely expressing to you something you have done well? You connect with that. You say, that's true. And I'm glad you noticed that. That's a genuine compliment. And Jesus gives them a genuine commendation. But then he follows it up with some bad news, if applicable. He wants them to know that there are some problems. You have some great things going for you, but you have some problems. And these problems are going to get you in trouble. And I want to prevent that. So I'm going to make you aware of them. And and then he gives a solution. This is what you need to do to fix this. And with the solution comes a promise that they will be overcomers if they follow the direction that Jesus has given them. And so that's kind of the formula that he uses as he addresses each one of these seven churches. As we look at the very first one, we, we look at the salutation and notice that he says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. We start with Ephesus. Ephesus is that um, town uh, that has the uh, port uh, right on the sea, and it's, the, it's actually the fourth largest and most significant city of the day in the Roman Empire. It is a key entrance into all of Asia, and it's logical that it would begin because this is kind of like the mother church as well. And so Jesus addresses Ephesus as the first church, 
and he writes to the messenger of the church. Now, there's been a lot of discussion about who the messenger is. Um, in the King James Version of the Scripture and some of the translations, you will note that it says to the angel of the church. And yet, most commentators are in agreement that the word angelos here should be translated messenger because that's in fact what it literally means. Uh, and, and all through Scripture, whenever angels show up, they're bringing a message. They're messengers. And so the question arises, is the messenger of the church at Ephesus, is that actually a supernatural being? Is it an angel? Or is it, in fact, the pastor of the church? Is it the overseeing uh, under-shepherd of the congregation? To whom is he actually addressing this? And if you read, I don't care how many commentaries you read, and you start keeping track, uh, that's going to go all over the place. There's a lot of debate about that. One of the clues to it is that he writes to the angel of the church at Ephesus, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. And in the Scriptures, many times, and particularly in Revelation, Stars and angels are equated symbolically. You remember how when Satan, uh, Lucifer, that's a rebellious angel, fell, it says he took a third of the stars with him. And so um, the, the symbolism is that the star represents the angel. So that particular statement tends to favor the idea that this is an angelic being who has been assigned the task of overseeing the church. I kind of like the idea that maybe it's the pastor, but I'm a little bit prejudiced. <laughs> and, and, and I like the translation messenger because I'm not an angel. I know that for a fact. <laughs> you just ask my family. Uh, they'll testify to that in a heartbeat. But... Um, but If you look at it as a supernatural being assigned to the congregation, you know, the Scripture doesn't tell us a lot about angels. I mean, there's plenty, but not not a ton. It's not a dominant doctrine in the Scripture. And yet, whenever we see them, we do see that God has assigned them a task of bringing messages or providing protection or oversight. And it's very interesting to me that every congregation has an overseer, one who is a guardian, one who is a protector. And whether that's the the pastor, and a good pastor is going to be all of that, or whether it's a supernatural being, it's very special to realize that Jesus has assigned a special messenger and overseer for every church to give it protection and covering and guardianship. And that He holds that one in His hand. That He guards that entity, angel or person, very particularly because he is very concerned that the congregation have that kind of protective covering. And then he tells us, I am also the one, Jesus speaking, I am also the one who walks among the golden lampstands. And we talked about this uh, in some detail a week or so ago, but I am also greatly encouraged by the fact that Jesus is always walking among the churches. Now, we also know he's seated at the right hand of God. And you say, well, how can he be all these places at the same time? Well, he, he is as much God as if he is not man at all. He's perfectly capable in his resurrected glory of being present. And one of the things that he does is he walks among the churches and pays attention. He is very interested in our progress, in our development, in what's going on 
uh, in our lives. And so these words that he begins with are very comforting. They're very strengthening. They remind us that we are known and loved by God and we are particularly invested uh, by Jesus Christ uh, in His interest and in His purposes for us. And then he gives the commendation to the church at Ephesus. He says, I know uh, your deeds and toil and perseverance, yet you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they're not, and you found them to be false, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake. And then he goes on uh, in verse 6 and mentions, uh, and I'm going to group these together because they fit together, And he says, you also hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, I want to just take a a parenthesis here. I don't know what happened to my voice this morning. It's pretty thin. I want to take a parenthesis here. And I want to talk to you a little bit about the, the history of the Ephesian church in order to get a handle on what uh, Jesus is saying to them. You recall in the book of Acts that the Apostle Paul and some of his associates established the church at Ephesus. It was the the first significant church plant in Asia and out of Ephesus as the mother church, those other churches were developed. And as Paul established that church, it had a very powerful beginning. I mentioned to you that um, it was one of the fourth largest cities in the Roman Empire. It consisted of about a quarter million people population, and uh, it uh, laid claim to the temple uh, of uh, the goddess of Artemis that um, was one of the wonders, seven great wonders of the ancient world. It was the largest temple in all of the empire, and it was the only temple built out of solid marble, every single Stonework in it was solid marble. And uh, it was a temple that was devoted to the goddess of fertility and that was uh, uh, served by thousands of priests and priestesses, uh, many of whom were temple prostitutes and uh, what they called sacred prostitutes in the fertility rites. And they were very proud of their heritage. This was very important to them. And so, you know the kind of trouble that that happened in that town and and all the difficulties that they had. But when when the church was born, the scripture says that as people were converted, they came under conviction of their idolatry and their immorality and their, their paganism and what amounted to witchcraft. And they brought all of their uh, charms and amulets and medallions and and uh, uh, potions and all those kind of things. They brought them all to an area uh, where they built a bonfire. And the scripture tells us that the the value of what they burned that day was fifty thousand denarii. You've heard me talk about that before when we were studying Ephesians. A denarius was equivalent to a day's wage. So that's 50,000 days wages. That's like 150 years of earnings that they burned in this bonfire to get rid of all of their ties to the old paganism. They made a clean break and they devoted themselves to follow Christ with all of their heart. Well, Paul went on and continued his evangelistic work. And then, as uh, Ashley read for us this morning at the beginning of the service, as he was headed back toward Jerusalem, fully expecting uh, to be incarcerated and ultimately to to be carried away to Rome, um, he wanted to stop uh, by Ephesus, but he couldn't go all the way inland to the city proper. And so he asked the the leaders and elders of the church to come and meet him by the sea at the port. And as he began to talk with them, he prophetically said to them, I know that after I leave, 
evil men are going to come in. And some are going to arise from your own number. And they're going to bring false teaching and they're going to lead you astray. And I want you to be on, on guard and alert for, for these evildoers that are going to come and try to distract you from the purity and the simplicity of the gospel. And uh, be alert because I see this coming in the Spirit. And he warned them. And they had this dramatic meeting and they wept over not... He says, I know you're not going to see my face again. And they wept over that. Their love for him was so tremendous and so devoted. And they were so wounded by this prophecy that he gave. And they, they just couldn't believe that that could happen to them. But we fast forward a few years to where Paul was in Rome and he's writing uh, to Timothy. And in his letter to Timothy, he says, You know how that all in Asia have turned away from me. In just a few short years, these churches and this Ephesian church that loved him so much and had made such a solid break with paganism, now have not only followed the false teaching, but they have rejected Paul and turned away from him and and treated him as an outcast. And their attitude toward him was one of of hatefulness uh, and they despised the work that he had done. Isn't it amazing, friends, how quickly we can fall? And it's amazing how fast people can be distracted. That they can be pursuing truth. And certain people can come in and and others can even arise from within their own midst and be deceived and disillusioned. And before you know it, the whole church has been turned. And things have, have gone way off the wire. And this had happened to Ephesus. And I don't know how long it took, but that was approximately A.D. 62, 63, maybe uh, ten total years from the time the church was born. And John is writing in the late 80s. So some 20, 25 years have passed since this uh, apostasy occurred. And somewhere in that intervening time, through the ministry of John who went there to be a leader, Timothy had been there trying to get them to turn back to the truth. Somewhere along the line, the Ephesian church woke up. They realized they had been duped. They challenged those who claimed to be apostles and were not And they found them false and they threw them out. The false teachers, they ran off. They returned to a solid orthodox faith, to to the, the very root and foundation of the gospel. And they came back to truth. And John writes in his first letter uh, that they went out from us because they never really were of us. And uh, he explains how uh, they had the Holy Spirit to guide them. And he was able to teach them and lead them into truth. And they uh, were now moving and walking in the light. Although they still had some work to do, they had come back from the, the brink of disaster and had returned to, to a solid foundation of faith. And so as Jesus addresses them, Now, all these years later, as he addresses them, he says, I know know what you've done. You've tested those who claim to be apostles. You've tested those false teachers. You have persevered in spite of persecution. You have been faithful for my name's sake. You have done well in returning to truth. You have upheld uh, the message of the gospel. You have purified your doctrine. You're back on solid footing. And you hate those uh, deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now, it's kind of hard to say who the Nicolaitans were because the, the fact of the matter is they're only mentioned in Revelation. 
Josephus gives a passive re- passing reference, but they're really only mentioned in Revelation. And, and here's the problem. We don't have any other information to, to rely on, and not much is said. But later on, as we look at some of these other churches, we find out that two things characterized uh, what apparently was this Nicolaitan cult. And by the way, I got kind of a kick out of this. Um, the, the word Nicolaitan comes from the two, word, two roots, Nike and Laos, uh, the, the Nike people. <laughs> Actually, they're the victory people. <laughs> the, the Greek word is victory, but it's the Nike people. So uh, don't uh, get me for copyright infringement or anything like that, but um, trademark, uh, you know, abuse or something. But but they're the Nike people, so you can remember them that way, the Nicolaitans. Yes, <laughs> we got it. Um, but uh, what was I saying? Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> it doesn't take much to distract me. The two things that characterized the Nicolaitans were the teaching of Balaam and that wicked queen Jezebel. And the two things that were characteristic of Balaam, what did Balaam do that got him into so much trouble? He taught the Israelites in the wilderness. He led them into immorality. And it, it destroyed their, their relationship with God over that. That was the whole, uh, some of the golden calf business and all that kind of stuff and, and all of their distraction. And Jezebel was an idolater of the first order. And so idolatry and immorality were apparently the key hallmarks of this Nicolaitan cult. And that fits into the Ephesian problem. Because what did I tell you? about the, the temple of the goddess of fertility. The two things that characterized the temple were idolatry and immorality. And apparently, and by the way, you had to make sacrifices to the goddess of fertility in order to join any of the artisan unions. You could not join the union without making a sacrifice and joining the cult. So how are you going to make a living... If you can't have a trade, because you will not sacrifice. And the implication is that the Nicolaitans probably used a a wrong interpretation of Paul's teaching to assuage their conscience and tell them that they could have their cake and eat it too, so to speak. That anything they did in the body did not affect their spirit. It was a part of that early uh, Gnostic uh, heresy that began to develop. And the idea was that there was such a separation between uh, the body and the spirit that you could do anything you wanted to in the flesh and it didn't affect your spirit and, and your spirit could love God and worship Him and it wouldn't affect your body. And so they probably led them into that kind of libertinism. And that was uh, devastating to the church. And so Jesus says, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. It's an abuse of the gospel. So, these are the good things. Here's a church that started well, got sidetracked, was led astray, and recovered, and came back to the straight and narrow and, and purified themselves and got their doctrine back on track and brought back the simplicity of the gospel. But then Jesus says, But I have a problem that concerns me greatly. You have left your first love. What are you talking about? You have left your first love. What was their first love? They fell in love with Jesus. They fell in love with Jesus. They were so thrilled at His sacrifice for them. They were so thrilled at His salvation. They were so swept up in that personal relationship. They gladly gave up all of their uh, worldliness and idolatry and and all of their... uh, 
amulets and things that they had depended on for safety and security, and they put all of their trust in Jesus Christ. They loved him passionately. They were totally devoted to him. And then they went through these trials. And as they began to emerge out of the trials, something had happened. I want to share with you some of the things that often pull us away from our first love. You're going to be a little surprised at this one. But fighting for orthodoxy can often leave you cold. Those of you that have listened to me any length of time at all know that I put premium importance on sound doctrine. I broke no argument whatsoever with the the Word of God being anything but His absolute, infallible, inerrant revelation. I will not tolerate false doctrine or or an abuse of of the gospel. It is absolutely crucial that we get it right. But what maybe I don't often say enough is that sometimes fighting for orthodoxy can sap your spirit and leave you cold. There's an interesting phenomenon that happens in Bible colleges and seminaries. You know what it is? Young men and women go to these institutions of higher learning to study the Scripture with an ardent and fervent passion of love for God, and they can't wait to get the training they need to hit the ground running and to serve God faithfully in some kind of ministry. And you know what happens? They start studying Old Testament and New Testament survey, and they have to read X amount of verses a week, and they have to take tests, and they have to write papers, and they have to study Greek, and they have to study Hebrew, and they have to study theology, and they have to answer questions, and they have to read all the different theologians, and they get lost in the quagmire of uh, differing opinions and ideas, and... and uh, Studying the Bible suddenly becomes a chore and it's a pass-fail reality that they're not going to get out of school unless they pass their exams. And all of a sudden, uh, they begin to blend their quiet time into their uh, necessary academic reading and uh, they soon lose time for prayer and they get frustrated and the Bible becomes the obstacle to their success instead of the means of their uh, devotion. And, and all of a sudden, they grow cold toward God. It happens subtly. But there is no better place to backslide than a Bible college or a seminary. I have seen that time and time again. And, and it's just unbelievable that in such an, envir- such an environment, people could lose their way. But they do so because a subtle transition takes place from the passionate pursuit of God to the academic analysis of the Scripture. And the heart begins to grow cold. Friends, what goes on in our head is not the seat of our relationship with God. It's what goes on in our heart. Another thing that often happens is, uh, even beyond the the graduation time, and and you get out into the ministry, and you become part of an organization, and it begins to drift. And then you find yourself in a position of contending for the faith. And you have never seen such bitter, vitriolic arguments as you will find between conservatives and liberals of the faith that are fighting tooth and nail for their position and dominance within their organizations. 
I remember years ago when I was uh, first starting out with the Southern Baptist and uh, I was trying to cope with the liberalism of, of that denomination as it was falling away from the truth. And they had essentially bought into all of the uh, critical thinking and German higher criticism and everything and demythologizing the scripture and, and all of that kind of nonsense. And, and there was a great struggle going on. And I decided I wanted to opt out of the battle. I just didn't want to go there. So we transferred to Toccoa Falls College and I prepared there and, and ended up in the Christian Missionary Alliance because it was a solid, stable organization and that was not a bone of contention. The, the Bible was the Word of God and uh, Jesus was born of a virgin and he physically rose from the grave and I didn't have to fight all that stuff. But eventually the Southern Baptists did. And they got involved in, in, in trying to sort that out. And then they finally elected some leadership that put their foot down and began to make some changes. And they began to appoint different presidents of the seminaries. And they began to uh, deal with the tenure of some of the professors that had drifted into liberalism. And let me tell you something. That was not just a battle over doctrine. There were hundreds of millions of dollars in retirement accounts and annuities that tenured professors had invested in and pastors of large churches were invested in. And all of a sudden, the contention and the fight was whoever wins the denomination is going to win the pot of gold. And the people that lose may be forced or out of conscience have to resign and forfeit not only their position, but their retirement account. It's amazing how so many times theological principles and, and doctrinal passion boils down to something to do with money somewhere along the way. And that fight ensued for quite a while. And ultimately, uh, there was triumph by the conservatives. And the first time in denominational history that I'm aware of, the Southern Baptists stemmed the tide and turned the ship, and they began to move in the right direction again. But it was at great cost, and there were many knock-down, drag-out fights in the conventions and the state conventions as they began to work through this battle. And people were left cold and passionless. It took the starch out of them. These kinds of things happen all the time. Furthermore, they're a failure to convoke... Failure... I had this trouble before the service started. Couldn't talk. The failure to cultivate the relationship brings emotional distance. You know, if you're going to have a relationship with God, you can't just meet Him when you're saved and then put everything on hold until you get to heaven. Any relationship requires nurture. You cannot maintain a passionate relationship for God and never talk to Him. You can't remember what He told you the first time you read the Scripture the rest of your life. You need to visit it again and again. I mentioned this last time. We have an enemy who snatches the Word away. I mean, he works hard at that. It's amazing how you can get a, a song on the radio stuck in your brain after one or two hearings, but you can't memorize a verse of Scripture after 15 attempts. It's phenomenal. Because we have an enemy. He doesn't care if we remember I did it my way. But he's real concerned if we remember take up your cross daily and die to yourself and follow me. Ah, that's something he doesn't want you to hang on to. And so if you're not cultivating the relationship, if you're not listening to his speech to you, if you're not communicating with him, if you're not spending time in his presence, if you're not singing and worshiping and praising him, if you're not involved with the saints and in developing um, corporate worship and relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're failing to do these things, eventually you'll, you'll grow cold. Probably every one of you that was ever in a youth group was on a camp out sometime when some youth leader took a, a, a coal or a, a stick or a log out of the fire and set it over to the side and continued on with their talk 
and then brought you back after about 20 minutes to observe that while the fire was still burning brightly, the, the log or the coal was barely glowing any longer. If you take yourself out of the relationship and sit on the sideline, you will grow cold and go out. You cannot avoid that. It is inevitable. And so one of the things that leads to that coldness, that that loss of passion, is that you stop doing those things that built the relationship and time passes and distance increases. And a third thing, and particularly when you've been through a time of persecution, you know, there's nothing worse to deal with than being falsely accused and treated as if you're guilty for something you didn't do and and experiencing loss over something you had nothing to do with. Those are hard pills to swallow. I mean, it's bad enough when a company merger occurs and you get the pink slip because they don't need two of you now on the job. And so they let you go. But it's even worse when you're misunderstood, people don't get you, and they just terminate you because they don't want you around anymore. And as far as you know, you've been doing your very best. What's going on with this? And when a church and a people have been through persecution and they've been suffering for their faith, what did I do to deserve this? You know, we live in a country where, thankfully, for the most part, it's not entirely true, but mostly there's still due process. But what if you lived in a country where one day you're driving down the road and suddenly you're boxed in by three police cars and they stop you and they come to the window And they haul you out of the car, and they put you in handcuffs and throw you in the back of the squad car, and they take you down to the local precinct, and they throw you in jail. And you don't know why you're there, and you don't know what you did, and you can't call an attorney because they don't care whether you have one or not. And after about a month, they come down and take you out, and tell you that you've been accused of crimes against the state because you're a Christian. And you can't see your family, and they don't know what happened to you, and you're sent to some labor camp somewhere where you're going to spend the rest of your life doing hard labor, and no one's ever going to hear from you again. How do you cope with that? What did you do? Do you deserve that? Jesus said to these people, You have persevered for my name's sake. You have stood up to persecution. You have hung in there when they were abusing you and misusing you. And when your businesses were shut down because you wouldn't sacrifice to the goddess of fertility. And you lost your income. And and you lost your homes. You have been faithful for my name's sake. But oftentimes when you do that, after a while, there's a tendency for a root of bitterness to grow up. And you begin to say, God, I've done nothing but love you and serve you and I've been faithful to you. Why is this happening to me? Why do I have this problem? Why has this overcome me? And disappointment with God begins to set in. And division occurs. And over time, coldness settles in. There are many things in the course of doing church and being a Christian that can actually serve 
push us away from God if we're not wise to the ways of the enemy. And Jesus said, you guys have done well. You've come back to truth. You're solid again in the Scriptures. You have sound doctrine. But you have lost your heart. You've lost your passion. You don't love me like you used to. You're just walking along in the motions. And even though you got it up here, you're missing it here. And you need to remember what it was like when you first found me. You need to repent of where you are today. And you need to return and do the things you used to do. This just came to me this morning. I'm not much for alliteration, but this one came out pretty good, so you can write it down. The three R's of restoration. Remember, repent, return. Remember, repent, return. It's important that you remember. If you and I are adrift, we need to stop and just think about where we used to be. We need to think about what it was like. Do you remember those early days? Man, you had to run me away from prayer meetings. I could pray all night. You could not stop. I could not wait to get home and read the Scriptures, get that math and science and history out of the way so I could study my Bible. I love to meet God in the Word. I sang songs to Him, hymns and songs and choruses. and I felt His presence with me every moment. It was amazing. It was wonderful. You need to remember that. Where were you then and where are you now? You need to remember. And repent is not a complicated concept. You know what repent means? It just means you turn around and go the other way. It's a change of mind. That's all it is. Some people cry. You don't have to cry. Some people fall on their face. You can do it standing up. Some people moan and groan and feel like they've got to suffer for a few weeks. You don't have to do that. You just need to change your mind. Right now. Right this minute. You need to decide that you don't want to take another step in the direction you're going. You want to take the next step going back. You want to go back where you were. That's all it is. Lord, I choose to go the other way. And, and, and here's where the rubber meets the road. This is the hard part. Because it's so simple. Most things are like that. They're hard because they're easy. Most people live in the realm of their emotions. And the first thing you're going to say to me is, I don't feel like doing that. I don't have any passion. You're telling me to go back and do stuff, and I don't want to do it. I just don't feel like it. I don't care whether it's a walk with God. I don't, I don't care what it is. Most people live in the realm of their emotions. Now, we are emotional beings. We're made that way. God is an emotional being. God has emotion. He loves us. He has passion for us. He rejoices over us with singing. He gets angry when people do horrible things. He pours His wrath out. Sons of Korah, the earth opened up and swallowed them. That's pretty dramatic. God has emotions. Emotions are not bad. 
But friends, emotions are supposed to be the result of an action, not the cause of it. We feel things when things happen. But we should not let things happen on the basis of what we feel. Are you with me? Jesus says, go back and do what you did. I don't feel like singing. I didn't ask you that. I just said sing. Go back and meditate on the scriptures. I've read it all. I know what it says. I don't want to... I didn't ask you that. I used to go back and do it. Worship me. Lift your hands up and praise me. Thank me for the blessings in your life. Acknowledge me. Well, everybody gets sunshine and food and gas and whatever. It's, you know... Roof over there. I mean, isn't that just normal stuff? So it's a deal. Thank me for it. Worship me. And you say, that's my problem. I don't want to do that stuff. I don't feel like it. I read a devotional guide many years ago. I was in college. One of my professors gave it out in class one day. I think Sidwell Baxter wrote it. He's not one of my favorite guys as time has gone along, but he had some good insight. Maybe it wasn't him. But anyway, whoever it was, this is what they said. He said, I purpose to return to my passion for God and to restore my quiet time and, and to begin to pursue the Lord. And The first time I set aside 30 minutes, he said, after about two minutes, I thought at least an hour and a half had gone by. And I tried to pray, and I found myself on the back nine trying to hit that shot I always miss. And uh, he said, I was constantly distracted. He said, the first day I tried that, it was just a total waste of time. But I got up the next morning, and I did it again. And he said, now I was on a different golf hole. And I was thinking about the headlines in the newspaper. But I got through five minutes. And then I determined the next day I would do it again. Make a long story short, he said, after about three weeks, I found that I looked forward to talking to God. I found that songs came to me easily and that I could pray for several minutes without my thoughts wandering. And I looked forward to what the Word was going to reveal to me. We need to do it in order to feel it. We need to go back and... That's what Jesus says. I mean, it's his advice, not mine. Do what you did at first. Because he knows when you make up your mind and repent and do it, in due time, your passion will grow. It's like taking that cold log and putting it back on the fire. And once it warms up, it'll begin to glow, and then the flame will burst. If you want to restore your passion for Jesus Christ and experience renewal, you need to take specific steps, starting with a change of mind. And you need to determine to be persistent no matter how you feel. Until, in due time, you're glowing again. You know, there's an exciting thing about this passage and every one of them to the churches that I find very comforting. And that is this. Jesus says, to the one that overcomes, I will grant 
to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. He doesn't make that statement to the church. He makes it to the individuals in the church, to the one that overcomes. We're in a spiritual battle. But if you will choose to be an overcomer, he will bless you, whether the rest of us do or not. You don't have to wait for the whole church to get on board. You can do it with God right by yourself. And He will meet you. And the amazing thing is, if five or six or seven of you do that, your flame will start to catch. Other people will get hungry. They're going to want what you've got. And they're going to try it. And then one day, we'll be glowing again. The consequence of not doing it is, Jesus says, I'm going to come and take your lampstand out of its place. That is not a statement about your eternal destiny. That is a statement about a church that has lost its passion. We have been put here to shine a light in a dark world. And if we can't do it, Jesus will move on to one that will. And he'll just move us out of the way. That's the history of churches throughout the ages. When they cease to be effective, they just fizzle away. And someone else takes the torch. I don't know about you, but I want to have a torch. All the rest of them can have it too. That's fine with me. But I want to be in a church that has a torch. I want to shine the light. I want to make a difference. And that's the opportunity that we have. Father, thank you for your word to us. And I pray this morning, Lord, that we would be a people who are not governed by our emotions, but in the power of your Holy Spirit and the triumph he has in our lives, that we will choose the right and rely on your empowerment for follow-through. Because that's what you promise. All we have to do is say, yes, Lord, I determine. And you come to our aid with all the power of your spirit to accomplish it. You're just waiting for us to make up our mind. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.